back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be marking the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina that absolutely devastated the city of New Orleans, Louisiana. Also going to be talking about ongoing protests in Iraq and also going to be marking one year with the uh, U.S. bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan that led to the rise of the Taliban in power. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Anthony Rogers Wright, Director of Environmental Justice with New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to be on as always. And good morning. Um, Happy Thursday. Absolutely. Happy Thursday to you too, Anthony. And we've recently marked uh, 17 years since Hurricane Katrina hit the city of New Orleans. And I mean, I mean, to describe this as devastating or impactful or even disastrous almost doesn't seem to be sufficient. When we talk about the real after effects and, and ripple effects of this storm that had consequences for the city of New Orleans, and I think also certain ways uh, throughout the country, right up until this very day. And then, you know, on September 2nd, uh, 2005, is when uh, rapper Kanye West uh, famously said, George Bush doesn't care about black people, back when Kanye used to say things like that. And, you know, this was sort of a serious, uh, huge uh, deal, not just in New Orleans, but I think throughout the country, with uh, a lot of people deeply critical, and rightly so, of the response or lack thereof from the George Bush uh, administration, uh, Anthony. But I'm just curious about what do you see as basically the main lessons, the main takeaways? What do you think was really revealed through the response to the U.S. government, to Hurricane Katrina, and how does it impact the people in the city today, you think? Oh, my goodness. Well, well, brother, thank you so much for the question. You know, what, what I can say is that Yes, we need to focus on the devastating effects, the physical damage that was caused by what we now call a climate change-induced storm like Katrina. Um, We are seeing the remnants of that right now as we stand in solidarity with um, Black folk and poor folk in Jackson, Mississippi. 180,000 of them don't have access to clean drinking water or or, or potable water at all, for that matter. So what what, what those two things have in common, brother, and Katrina is what we really saw— was um, the exposure of how the United States of America treats its black residents, treats its poor residents, right, as, as disposable. They treat their neighborhoods as disposable. They treat their public health as disposable. And they even treat their, their right to have a place to live, a healthy place to live, as disposable. So what we really saw were the, um, uh, was an intersection of the root causes of the climate crisis in the first place, which, as I said on your show many times, white supremacy, patriarchy, colonization, because it wasn't just the storm that displaced folk, right? It was the neoliberalism. It was the capitalism, the vulture capitalism, right? The disaster capitalism, because as we know, a lot of the folk, largely poor and black, 
who can't even return to New Orleans, it has nothing to do with what the storm did. It has to do with what the capitalism did after um, they, they were displaced, right? To come back and they're, they're priced out of their own cities, to see housing, public housing torn down, you know, to make room for new luxury condos and whatnot. And then, you know, and, and the last thing I'll say really quickly is that we also saw the disparity between who was hit first and worse versus folk who could actually survive, right? We know Uptown, the Uptown uh, uh, portion of New Orleans, which is where there is a whole bunch of old white wealth, that part of the city was actually all right. It did not get impacted as much as we know infamously about the lower night. And then we have to talk about the response, as you said. To this day, brother, we are already now, we are still seeing, I should say, the fact that FEMA treats claims for white affluent people differently than they treat claims um, after disasters for poor and black folk. So, you know, what, we, what we're seeing is history repeating itself, repeating itself, because the root causes of what led to Katrina have never been addressed or eviscerated. Definitely. And when you mentioned white supremacy in the response to Hurricane Katrina, I think that's a fundamental and crucial aspect of how this uh, played out, Anthony. And there's really three things that uh, uh, come to mind uh, in thinking about it. I mean, number one, there was this racist portrayal of uh, black people seeking supplies as quote unquote looters, where uh, white people doing the same thing uh, did not get that same kind of uh, treatment in the public eye. So here you have people who have had their lives upended, but are being portrayed as criminals in the consciousness of people in this country. Number two is uh, uh, the militarization of uh, New Orleans with the actual military uh, threatening people, of course, uh, mostly black as well. And then number three, there's the less talked about aspect of racist terror that was happening after Katrina. And that was the self-deputized racist vigilantes who were basically hunting and killing black people, shooting them uh, uh, to death. I mean, we know for a fact that this things that these things happen. And so, I mean, it's just, I mean, to call it frightening, I don't think it is even a strong enough word to describe what uh, black folks in New Orleans uh, face throughout the experience uh, uh, of New Orleans. And then even connecting it uh, today with uh, Joe Biden giving $37 billion to the police and trying to increase their numbers uh, on the streets to, I mean, basically in increase this terror from a state supported um, uh, uh, standpoint. I mean, it, it just, uh, it, it <laughs> one almost, uh, has a lack of words to, to really describe all the things that, that happened there, Anthony. But, I mean, as you've been saying, I just don't think it can be said enough about how uh, the race and class dynamics of uh, New Orleans uh, uh, seems to have a pretty critical uh, impact on, on what the response to Katrina looked like. You know what I mean? No, no, absolutely. And all you have to do is look at New Orleans today, right? New Orleans used to be a chocolate city. That's what we used to refer to New Orleans as, right? I, I like to say that it's become more of a vanilla milkshake with drops of chocolate syrup sinking to the bottom of the cup. I mean, they, they've been priced out. They've been pushed out. I mean, and if you speak, I've spoken to uh, sisters, brothers, and friends in solidarity in Palestine, and they've compared what happened in New Orleans to the Nakba when, when, when their folk were upended, you know, um, 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 by European settlers. And we've also, of course, um, spoken to there's plenty of indigenous people people who live in that in that part of uh, the country, the Gulf of Mexico, right? They also saw a lot of similarities between the process of colonization 
Trail of Tears, you know, parallels as well. So again, I think the, the most painful thing, you know, as people who are in Jackson, Mississippi are going through this, you know, right now, right? Because it wasn't just New Orleans that was impacted by Katrina. It was an entire region. We, you know, we, we had folks in the Gulf, in um, um, Mississippi, as far north as Jackson, who felt the impacts of that storm. So, you know, what you really are seeing is a triggering of PTSD that's associated with having gone through that hurricane. And, um, uh, you know, I might add that there's an amazing um, a black woman, uh, uh, fully love. She came up with the term uh, shortly after Katrina to describe, you know, the, the mental and emotional anguish that comes with literally being uprooted from your home only to like potentially never be able to, to return uh, due largely to um, the vulture ca- uh, and disaster capitalistic um, um, scenarios that we just we just discussed. So, you know, there's, there's really no words. And what makes matters even worse is that we haven't seen an improvement you know, with, with how this country deals with environmental justice communities. We've seen a regression, and, and, and I, I think that makes the state uh, the harder. Definitely. And I think another aspect of this that I think maybe do, that doesn't get enough attention, Anthony, is how, in a number of ways, New Orleans, Louisiana became a laboratory for certain things, certain uh, experiments that I think um, uh, both, you know, uh, state and federal governments wanted to try out uh, across the country that they sort of used Hurricane Katrina as an excuse to do. And there's two major ways that I think this played out. Number one, and speaking for myself, I was really introduced to the concept of uh, gentrification and displacement um, around the fact that far Following Katrina, some of those huge, long-standing uh, uh, public housing buildings that took on very little damage from the hurricane, uh, the city government voted unanimously to tear them down and build these uh, uh, mixed incomes uh, a sort of units. And, you know, the phrase that I believe they used at the time was that they wanted to, you know, uh, uh, decentralize poverty. But what that basically means is getting rid of all the poor and working class black people. And uh, uh, the other one is the issue of the schools and how New Orleans became the first major city in the United States uh, to basically be uh, completely privatized. There are no public schools in in Orleans Parish School District to this day. And so when we look at how both of those processes have spread uh, uh, across the United States in the years since, I think it just says a lot about the plans that both state and federal governments have for its black, poor and working class people and for its struggling uh, uh, people in general. And it's the people of New Orleans that had to uh, uh, shoulder the consequences of this uh, before a whole lot of other folks. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, brother. I mean, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. What, what Katrina represented, right? Because, I mean, these formulas, as you stated, were already in place, right? You know, when you have a chemical equation, there's something called the catalyst, which can speed that process up. That's what Hurricane Katrina was, um, you know, for, for people who, who already had plans for New Orleans, which is all, you know, a very desirable place. You know, you see what's happened to property values since Katrina, when black folk uh, got pushed out. Um, it's this massive neoliberal experiment of austerity. As you said, a, a major city with no public school. I mean, I mean, give me a break. Um, you know, we, we all know who that, that 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 also comes from a neoliberal um, Obama um, administration mindset, as well as it did from his predecessor uh, uh, George W. Bush. And then I think, I, you know, as we saw with Ray Nagin, brother, my goodness, I mean, you, you know, you said like that was kind of like one of the first times 
uh, you, you saw justification for me. Ray Nagin was like the epitome of what our dear late brother um, um, Glenn Ford refers to as the blackness leadership class. And so, you know, we really do have to also talk about that um, when you have neoliberal local black leadership that is going to allow for them to be uh, bought and sold by corporations who now essentially own and run New Orleans from the fossil fuel industry um, uh, to the big insurers um, and, 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 land, and land developers um, as well. So, you know, what, what we saw with uh, New Orleans was this experiment, and it was like, it's working. We displace people. We uh, get the rest out through massive austerity programs. And then we take away basic public services like drinking water, right? Get those people out. Then all of a sudden, you know, the services improve to get the so-called desirable people that they want um, in that city. And that's very, very unfortunate because we all know in our hearts that New Orleans does not exist without its black and indigenous population. It, it's just, it would just be national without, without those people there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think maybe one of the more obvious issues that a Hurricane Katrina raises, Anthony, is um, the issue of environmental racism and how uh, these same dynamics of uh, race and class exploitation um, always uh, seem to be visited upon, uh, you know, the, the struggling people and people of color within these certain communities. And that's definitely not something that's restricted to Louisiana uh, or, or to New Orleans, rather, but elsewhere just in the state. I mean, Cancer Alley is also present in uh, uh, Louisiana, where there's all of these different uh, industrial corporation uh, type places that have literally uh, given the people there incredible levels of cancer and other sicknesses. And, and they been taking legal action to try to get redress uh, uh, from this. And so I think it just shows how so many of these issues are inextricably linked. Race, class, the climate, uh, education, housing, all these different things bound up in this uh, racist capitalist system that leads to uh, that not only pushes people to the margins, but I think also consigns people to a kind of social death because their lives uh, simply have no value outside um, uh, to the extent that they can be exploited by that system. You know what I mean? And so I think as organizers and as movement people, it should tell us that since all these different issues are interconnected, that it will behoove us to bring together a lot of these different wings of these different movements across lines of division to really strike a blow at the system and institutions that's creating suffering for so many. I mean, you, you be careful, brother. You're going to get yourself a job, you know, in the nonprofit sector. You see kids speaking things like that, but that's exactly right. And, and, and if you look at the environmental justice and climate justice movements, brother, that's exactly what they've been saying from the, from the outset is that we got to bust down these silos, these single issue silos, when you're taking on forces such as these that all feed off of each other, white supremacy, climate change, how, all that you name. You know, all those sectors coming together and working, as a great uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw says, intersectionally, really intersectionally, is the only way that we're, um, you know, going to be able to step up and stop these forces. Because, you know, the other thing that people are thinking about, you know, today in the Gulf, as you said, uh, the, the entire Gulf South, is, you know, when you approach capitalism with capitalist solutions, market-based solutions, that's how you end up with a small piece of legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, is going to open up that region to potentially 600 
600 million acres of oil and gas leasing, right, which we know are in, in part the cause for the storms being more powerful in the first place, whether it's Katrina and then, you know, Maria and then Harvey. You know, it's also the one-year anniversary of Ida in, in New York, which, of course, you know, took out mostly poor, uh, um, um, poor folk in, in throughout the state. So it really just, you know, goes to show that, you know, a, a silo-based approach is not going to get it done, and neither are pieces of policy that are still refusing to let go of its grip from a fossil fuel empire and fossil fuel cartels that are causing this damage, whether it's a, a direct assault to public health or to the physical environment. We know, for instance, right, that the first federally recognized people to um, have to evacuate their, their land altogether because the fossil fuel industry um, are, are Native American folks, right? People down in Louisiana. In, in so they're federally recognized um, because of, 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 of the cataclysms that they're going through. But they're not even a federally recognized tribe, which, which, is, a, which is a whole uh, uh, other sector we could have a discussion on. But, I, I, you know, in, in closing this all up, it just will show you, like, if you don't come together, if, if, you, if you're not in full uh, intersectional force, such as what we saw down in Colombia, you had the other show to talk about that, which led to the election of of President and, and, and Francia Marquez, it's not going to be possible to stop these systems because you can't go after these systems, systems one by one by one, right? It has to be a, a unified, organized um, effort that really sees how all of these things work in synergy um, and, 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 and in the intersections. And that's where we're also going to find the solutions. So now, more than ever, it's time to follow the lead of grassroots environmental justice, climate justice organizations in Louisiana throughout the country. We just saw, for instance, you mentioned Cancer Alley, one of the bigger victories that we've seen in Louisiana as of yet was due to a black and brown and native-led struggle um, in Formosa against uh, plastic refineries that would have exposed them to more toxic air. They were able to stop that, right? And, it's, and more so than ever, why we can't allow for an austerity of environmental protection laws, which is being proposed right now by uh, 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 Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, to come after the tools and the abilities for us to protect our communities. Now more so than ever, I think, that through the minds of um, most Louisianans, I'm not from Louisiana, I stand in solidarity with all of them, that's what's in the mind of people in Jackson, Mississippi, who don't have access to drinking water, as they're also going through the trauma of reliving when this government, the people's government, purposely sacrificed them and had no problem uh, doing so. And, and what are we going to do? What are the systems we're going to put in place, the alternative systems, so that no one has to go through this, whether they're black, brown, poor, white, Asian, whatever. You know, and, and that's what I think the big takeaway is right now. The organizing in the South is incredible. The South is absolutely rising, and it's rising because it's being led by grassroots folks. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. I think without question, the South is showing itself to really be uh, the next major frontier for a, a working class struggle and grassroots struggle here in the United States. And I also appreciate you raising the international piece because it's true that all these dynamics and issues that we're talking about, um, they're not just restricted <clears throat> to one city or to one state. It's definitely not restricted even to just uh, the United States, even though this is uh, the world's imperialist superpower, that indeed these things have implications in reach across uh, people's lands and resources all around this globe. And so I think we have to then orient ourselves to an international uh, working people's struggling people's movement that can make that kind of collective blow that you're talking about, Brother Anthony, to not only resolve these particular issues that we're talking about, but to bring about a new system in a new society that works for people's needs instead of against them. Well, we thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with 
Jesus. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about ongoing protests inside Iraq. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Mazda Majidi, a longtime anti-war and social justice activist and Middle East analyst. Mazda, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Mazda, uh, we continue to see a a protest that had been going on in Iraq uh, centered around the figure of Muqtada al-Sadr and his um, followers. And reportedly, at least 30 people have been killed and over 700 injured in some of these different protests. And so I think before we even get to these most recent incidents, I was hoping you could sort of contextualize uh, uh, what is really the background background of these protests. Who is a Muqtada al-Sadr and how have things developed up until this point? Well, it's a long, complicated story. It really goes back to, like all other major developments in Iraq, to the U.S. invasion of Iraq and how the U.S. really destroyed uh, not just Iraq's infrastructure, but their whole system of government, the debasification process that they took on the U.S. and even the constitution that the Iraqis uh, are operating under, thanks to L. Paul Bremer, the U.S. essentially colonial master in Iraq. But Muqtada al-Sadr is a political and religious leader based in southern Iraq, in Najaf and Karbala. He's a Shia political leader. And he is the son of a very famous uh, leader. I mean, you'll see places in Iraq named after Sadr. That's not Muqtada, that's his father. Um, But, um, you know, he was uh, against the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Um, uh, His, you know, involvement goes back to the years after the 2003 invasion and really the strong resistance that Iraqis, not just Shia, of course, a lot of it was the the Sunnis in central uh, Iraq, the Shia, you know, Iraqis of all religious backgrounds, of course, fought the occupation. But Muqtada al-Sadr at the time was against the U.S. occupation. He joined a coalition government of Nuri al-Maliki and the same major political players are still around. But he joined the government, but he was always considered an outsider. And so his background goes to that. He does have a pretty strong following, including among people in the Sadr city neighborhood of Baghdad, which is the capital. Sadr city is a big, big neighborhood of about two million predominantly Shia people. And one of the things that he recently did prior to the more recent uh, developments that um, you started talking about was he called for a Friday prayer. This is in July in Baghdad, where it gets up to 115, 120 degrees. He called for a Friday prayer out in the open 
and something like 20,000 people showed up. So he definitely does have a strong public following. Definitely. I appreciate that that background. And it also makes me think about some of the uh, uh, more current issues that have been happening inside Iraq that I think um, impact this as uh, well. Uh, uh, Mazen, we talk about the political turmoil that uh, has been, uh, frankly, raging inside Iraq for some years now. I mean, even if we just go back to uh, October 2019, I mean, uh, at that time, the government was led by uh, Adil Abdul al-Mahdi, who had to resign uh, after protests that went on for uh, almost a year, which uh, ultimately led to fresh elections. But even 10 months after that, uh, uh, there still uh, uh, has not been a government that's been able to form any rock. And so why do you think that is? I mean, what are some of the different dynamics that have kept Iraq from getting on a solid footing in, in, as far as its governance is concerned? Well, you know, prior to the U.S. occupation of Iraq, contrary to all kinds of attempts by the U.S. and their mouthpieces, Iraqis predominantly did not identify themselves as Sunni and Shia and Kurd. This is not to say that obviously everything was perfect and there were conflicts and so forth, but the U.S. occupation in their, you know, pursuit of divide and conquer strategy, they really came up with things like terms such as the Sunni triangle, which is a term that no Iraqis were familiar with prior to the U.S. occupation. There were very suspicious bombings in places of worship, which made sure that the Iraqis uh, would be divided um, along those uh, religious lines. And now the way that they've constructed the constitution with the president being a Kurd, the prime minister being a Shia and the head of parliament being a Sunni Arab, um, it has created a division based on ethnicity and there are new political entities, political parties, political coalitions and blocs that really can't get along with each other. And not only that, the, the, the way that the constitution is structured makes it very difficult to govern. For example, the election, Sean, that you mentioned that happened uh, about 10 months ago, you know, there's 329 members of, um, of the Council of Representatives. And in order to form a government, uh, you know, a coalition, a party or a coalition needs to have a two thirds majority to form a government. Well, in that election, Muqtad al-Sad and his block of representatives had 73, which was the biggest block, but far from the two-thirds necessary. So one of the things that's um, uh, leading to the current crisis is that they haven't really had a, um, you know, a permanent government. It's a caretaker government since the last election because no one has been able to form a majority, a two-thirds majority to form a government. So then there's all kinds of infighting and there's uh, uh, the developments that have led to the followers of Sadr to go into the parliament building and take over. There's been uh, armed you know, confrontations between the followers, predominantly between the followers of Muqtada al-Sadr and the people who are associated with the former prime minister Nuri al-Maliki, who is possibly pushing to get another term as prime minister. So, and then the protests, and of course there's been protests in different parts of Iraq, there's been protests in Baghdad, there's been protests in Karbala, 
and they have been different in political character, but essentially they speak to the inability of the government to meet some of the basic needs of the people. Yeah, definitely. And you know, a couple of times already, Mazik, you've mentioned um, the U.S. occupation of Iraq, and I think that that's actually a, a crucial um, a dynamic in terms of how things have been uh, unfolding in Iraq in the time since. And I, I'm just wondering, what is the relationship like today between uh, the U.S. and Iraq since that war? I mean, I think a lot of us, definitely myself included, um, remember uh, that two. 2003 uh, invasion of Iraq at the behest of the U.S., which helped spark mass demonstrations uh, here in the U.S. I mean, many believe that was sort of the last height of the anti-war movement here in the U.S. But what does that look like today? And what has U.S. interest in uh, uh, Iraq, uh, like what is it based on, is what I'm really wondering. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're uh, taking us there, Sean, because it's a significant thing at the time you know, many of us who were active organizers in the anti-war movement, we all knew the changing justifications for the U.S. occupation of Iraq. It was to get to Osama bin Laden. It was to stop the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, these were all lies. But then another one that has now become the dominant narrative is, oh, it's, it was an attempt to build democracy. And it's very interesting, sad, that the corporate media are now painting a picture that, oh, well, we try to create a democracy for the Iraqis. But of course, you know that the Iraqis don't really have experience with democracy. So it takes time. They really can't handle it. And this is something that if you read much of the coverage in the media today, that's really how they're portraying it. But the fact is that the U.S. has lost uh, much of the direct impact that they wanted to. The invasion was really following the goal of creating another stable client state, much like those in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Jordan and the rest of them, so as to secure oil and gas for the U.S. and to make sure that there's not any um, anti-imperialist Arab nationalism that kind of catches on in all of the um, Arab world. So, you know, by that criterion, the occupation has failed. There was so much resistance to the U.S. occupation that, you know, in year three um, of the occupation, the U.S. decided, okay, well, this is not going to work, so let's do something else. And what they ended up doing is that they basically went to many Iraqi forces, uh, many of whom were actively resisting the occupation, to say, okay, we need you to form a government because this is not working. Our dream of having a client just run Iraq didn't work. And so they set up this constitution and there's been governments since that time and prime ministers and other politicians who have played a game of, um, you know, working with the United States, but they're not really clients. And now that the U.S. has moved out in terms of not having their military presence. The U.S. doesn't have much direct influence, but essentially the chaos that the Iraqis are suffering is still very much the direct consequence of the occupation. Definitely. And I feel like all of this has had 
a deleterious impact on the consciousness of people in the United States as it regards Iraq Mazda because, I mean, what you're describing is this narrative of quote-unquote humanitarian intervention that, you know, uh, basically justifies and whitewashes this uh, brutal military aggression. Like you say, in the name of, of uh, building democracy or protecting human rights, when indeed uh, we don't even necessarily enjoy that right here inside the United States. I mean, to say nothing about what U.S. imperialism has done abroad uh, projecting its power through its 800 some odd uh, military bases and uh, uh, installations. And so when we look at how a number of uh, wars and, and conflicts and destabilization efforts that the U.S. is engaged in around the world, it always seems to want to paint them uh, in a positive light and to have people see them through uh, rosy sunglasses, which seems necessary from their perspective, because if they were to just be honest about what they were really after in these countries, well, then that might incline people to actually speak out uh, uh, against the, uh, uh, these wars, particularly if uh, Americans realized how these things negatively impact them as well. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, kind of really puts a major strain on the imagination is that a state that historically and to the present, all it does is oppress the people here, oppresses the workers, certainly oppresses uh, black and brown people, imprisons them, you know, has their cops shoot them on the streets and everything. And they have a electoral system that, thanks to the wisdom of the supposed founding fathers, uh, doesn't even count the actual votes of the people, but it has the electoral college. The notion that this government would go halfway around the world with their hundreds of military bases, bomb other countries just so that they can give them the present, the gift of democracy, is something that it's pretty hard to imagine, and you'd have to be extremely naive to believe a story like that. But the invasion of Iraq, even, of course, it was an abject disaster for the Iraqi people. In many ways, Iraq was a stable government. They had uh, one of the best healthcare systems in the Middle East prior to the, not just the invasion, but the 12, 13 years of sanctions before that. And it was an independent state with all of its contradictions. And of course, it had to be taken down from the imperialist perspective. But not only has, has the invasion and the occupation been a disaster for the Iraqi people with millions of lives lost, but it actually has even failed the imperialist uh, uh, forces, well, mainly the United States and its junior partners in Europe, it has failed to materialize what they were hoping. Again, Iraq has not turned into another Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. But the whole thing is a lesson for those of us who are really struggling and organizing against the empire and what it's doing at home and what it's doing abroad, which is really an extension of its policies at home. I mean, it, our government doesn't commit all the crimes that it does against its own people in the U.S. and then turn into a major humanitarian when it goes abroad. It's the same animal. Yeah, without question. And, you know, uh, even later in the show today, Mazda, we'll be uh, uh, marking the, the first year since the U.S. withdrew from um, Afghanistan, which, of course, uh, led to the rise of um, uh, the Taliban in that country. And it just makes me think about how um, uh, uh, the U.S., 
absolutely has designs and plans for uh, maintaining a stranglehold on, you know, the Middle East, Central, uh, South Asia region. And it seems like Iraq is a, a sort of a prime example of how destabilizing uh, these countries and suppressing its uh, progressive elements is pretty key in that effort. And uh, the actual human cost of that just seems to be not even a thought, almost said afterthought, but it really doesn't seem to be a thought at all, you know? You're right, you're right. And when we talk to people, I think it's important to emphasize the fact that Iraq did in fact had a revolution, a major social movement in 1958. Prior to that, all of 100% of Iraq's oil went to the oil companies to, um, uh, none of it went to Iraq. And it's this uh, major transformation that led to the nationalist forces, the Ba'ath Party, and you know there was a coalition that included the Communist Party, the Ba'ath Party, and other forces that took over. And the Ba'ath movement and Arab nationalism was a movement that wasn't just in Iraq; it was in uh, Syria as well. It had its impact in. Um, Egypt, and from the U.S. perspective, that had to be destroyed. So it was a long process with many, many developments. It was it took a you know 13-year sanctions of Iraq, which led to the deaths of you know maybe a couple of million people, and then eventually it came to an invasion. But all of that was really pursuing the goal of destroying what was an independent state, because again, if you're an imperialist power. If you have a settler state in the region by the name of Israel, if you're trying to make sure that you pretty much control the oil and the natural resources of the region, you have to continue to overthrow whatever independent state there exists. And what they feed us here in the U.S. is that, oh, this leader or that leader is a dictator, they're not democratic and so forth, and they do that. But their real purpose has absolutely nothing to do with democracy and people's votes and individual freedoms or anything like that. It's to secure the interests of their multinational corporations, which is who, you know, Washington really serves. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Mazda, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here at Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're marking the anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Sadab Aslami, a doctoral candidate at Syracuse University. Sadab, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Sadab, uh, Taliban officials have declared August 31st uh, a national holiday to celebrate the anniversary of the withdrawal of U.S. troops that comes after 20 years of occupations 
from the U.S., uh, which, of course, led to the rise of the leadership of the Taliban in uh, uh, the country. And, uh, you know, according to reports, uh, close to 50,000 civilians were actually killed during uh, this two decades of war. And uh, even the Pentagon felt the need to um, uh, comment on this anniversary with a letter drafted by U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin saying, quote, we know this work is not done. We must keep a relentless focus on counterterrorism. And we are. And so, sort of, I'm just wondering how you're seeing um, sort of the state of Afghanistan coming a year after uh, the U.S. withdrew with uh, the rise of the Taliban that I think just about everyone uh, uh, expected and what that has meant for the people there in that country. Yeah, look, um, the Taliban can celebrate, uh, as they say, uh, victory over you know U.S. imperialism, Western imperialism. And, and, and to an extent, uh, they may be right in, in that, but their celebration comes um, comes across as awfully shallow to me and, and I think to, uh, to, to millions of Afghans uh, across the world, they are celebrating uh, sort of um, what they claim is their sovereignty, return of sovereignty to Afghanistan. Uh, and yet what we see one year after uh, the U.S. withdrawal is still a stranglehold, a, a Western-imposed stranglehold over the country. You know, the Taliban came in and continue to this day to make promises about uh, providing education, employment, and so on and so forth to the people, uh, even, uh, you know, especially of late to uh, to women, as, uh, you know, Western countries make these condemnations of uh, the the truly horrific uh, state of affairs for, for, for women in the country. Uh, and yet, employment across the board uh, especially for women uh, in the country, has, has decreased. Uh, Afghanistan is in a uh, dire uh, state of economic and diplomatic isolation. The U.S., uh, leading other Western countries, has imposed some of the most brutal sanctions uh, in recent history uh, on Afghanistan, which today continue to throw the economy into ruin. So what are the Taliban celebrating? Again, it's it's very shallow, you know, um, while while they celebrate Western countries hem and haw, uh, at least in the public discourse, about what to do, what a response should be to Afghanistan. And, and what has been the response is uh, condemnations uh, and, again, sanctions. But, but, but what, do these, what, what do these provide? It, 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 you know, it, it just amounts, these condemnations and sanctions amounts to a refusal of, uh, of engagement with the country uh, while millions uh, suffer. Millions in the country suffer. Uh, according to the United Nations, 95% of the population of Afghanistan faces uh, starvation. So, so yes, it's it's a very um, it, it's a very sorry state of affairs. Absolutely, and. You know, could you remind us sort of of, you know, what was the context for uh, the ultimate U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years of occupation, of course, under the um, uh, uh, Biden administration? And I think along with that, we have to ask, why did the U.S. stay in Afghanistan so long? Well, to answer the second question, I think there, there are a lot of different um Ideas and theories that abound. If you're to look at the uh, the Afghanistan papers released by uh, the Washington Post, you know the story you get there of the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan was one of just prolonged, you know, pr prolonged sort of lack uh, of of mission, and yet at least a diplomatic one and and and. Uh, 
this um, story that the, that the U.S. officials like to say, tell about uh, building uh, uh, the, the state in Afghanistan, you know, the, these Afghanistan papers reveal that that really was not the, the, the objective or the mission of this 20-year period. And yet, if you look sort of beyond that, you can kind of uh, think about, well, uh, the uh, tremendous amount of capital and money that was um, flowing into uh, private companies and private hands, particularly mili uh, military industrial companies uh, that were profiteering from the prolonged military engagement in Afghanistan. And I think it's for that reason why, when under the Trump administration, there was uh, talks about expediting these uh, peace negotiations with the Taliban, uh, why the Pentagon, uh, uh, you know, came out in strong uh, opposition to uh, movements under the Trump administration to withdraw. I, I believe under the, the, the original NATO uh, target uh, date for withdrawal was 2024. Obviously, that withdrawal came much sooner. We have to also remember that uh, you know uh, many people, I think, especially in the, the in, in the State Department, around the beginning of August last year, didn't want nor imagine probably another sort of scenario in which the U.S. was leaving a country in a very highly shameful and embarrassing way, uh, you know, such as we may have seen in the so-called fall of Saigon as uh, the U.S. Uh, withdrew from Vietnam in 1975. And yet it, it amounted to that. The, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan as a uh, former president and ally of the United States, uh, Hamid Karzai said in a recent interview, uh, amounts to um, nothing but a very shameful and disgraceful act. I mean, we all remember vividly the images uh, of, of despair and uh, and and really uh, tragedy uh, at the at the uh, airport in Kabul uh, around this time last year, as, as Afghans were uh, scrambling to find ways of leaving the country. So it was it, it's all been just very disgraceful. Um, and yet, again, I will say that uh, we can't forget uh, that in spite of this, uh, however. However embarrassing this was for the United States, the United States uh, still maintains the upper hand and, and still maintains a, a, a significant level of control uh, over Afghanistan. I mean, they, the, the U.S. military forces uh, may, may have been withdrawn from Afghanistan, but that doesn't mean that the U United States is any less uh, controlling uh, or, or in a position of, of, of power over that country. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you mentioned the uh, the issue of sanctions uh, a little earlier, Sadab, and that's definitely a big factor in uh, uh, the conditions of Afghanistan. But then there are even uh, more brazen things, like when Joe Biden sees the assets of the Afghan Central Bank. And we're talking about several billion dollars that was literally stolen from the people of Afghanistan um, and with the, some, you know, strange justification that somehow was going to be used to help them. I mean, how does Washington justify uh, 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 doing that? And what are its real interests there, you think? Well, look, uh, you know, I think that, uh, again, this this amounts to the, a, 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 uh, a, a, a uh, stubborn uh, and uh, a, a, a stubborn uh, denial uh, within the U.S. government to uh, allow Afghanistan to uh, develop on its own terms, and and a, a re a re 
asserting of of its sort of um, economic and global dominance. Uh, you know, when the executive order came out, um, uh, where, where Biden announced that this these uh, you know estimates vary, but it's you know close to ten billion dollars in in foreign assets that were foreign assets of the Central Bank of Afghanistan in in New York City. The Central Bank of Afghanistan also has uh, foreign assets uh, elsewhere in the world, but it, the vast majority. The line share, which was uh, in the United States, you know, when when it said that this, when when the executive order came out that these assets were going to be seized, you know, uh, the idea was uh, that uh, we we don't want the, the we being the U.S. government doesn't want to recognize or legitimize the, uh, the, the Taliban uh, and and give them a means to you know continue to provide a haven for terrorism. Uh, I think the recent uh, drone attack, uh, which uh, uh, said to have killed uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, you know, the former al-Qaeda leader uh, in Kabul, uh, also is is a pretty big um, game changer and, and boon uh, for, frankly, for the U.S. government to say, well, you know, using this as evidence to continue denying uh, a return of this, uh, these, the, this, this money to the people of Afghanistan, to whom this money is, it belongs and is owed. You know, there were there was a lawsuit filed by certain families uh, of the victims of 9-11 uh, last week. Uh, just very recently, uh, a U.S. judge uh, determined that these uh, uh, victims, these families of the victims of 9-11 were not uh, entitled to the assets of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. However, you know, uh, you know, this money still <laughs> remains uh, um in the hands of the U.S. government, um, you know there were reports after Zawahiri's uh, killing uh, that Biden was was you know definitively not going to return these assets even as humanitarian assistance, which he had promised, or the uh, uh, the uh, you know the uh, uh, spokesperson of the State Department has promised, but uh, you know they have denied these these rumors. You know, look, uh, even if the United States provides humanitarian assistance and aid uh, through what they're claiming now, uh, half of this money, the, 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 what they're quoting is $3.5 billion. Even if this a portion of this was returned to Afghanistan uh, 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 through humanitarian aid, uh, humanitarian aid will never uh, be a substitute for a functioning economy uh, around basic commodities in the country. It will never be uh, a, a, a substitute for uh, the ability for Afghanistan to economically and materially stand on its own two feet. Uh, what the country needs right now are, are the abilities to control what is an extremely volatile exchange rate and 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 uh, provide stability for price prices in the country, uh, which are main drivers for poverty. You know, uh, the, the, right now there's this abstract moral uh, question that the West seems to be grappling with, which is, you know, how do we protect? And uh, you know, in almost this paternalistic sense, how do we protect um, uh, the the rights of women uh, in in Afghanistan? You know, and and yet all the while, by denying this money that is owed to the people of Afghanistan, it, women are suffering um, uh, 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 in in in, un, in uh, unimaginable ways. You know, it's it's women who are leading in many senses uh, of their own determination the the struggle against the Taliban. They're still taking to the streets, uh, chanting "Non Kor Azadi," uh, food, work, uh, freedom. Uh, so 
you know, right now, if, if it, you know, if people, if the West is truly concerned with the, the, the plight of women in the country, there would be ways of, of returning this money, uh, whether it be through uh, different monitoring mechanisms and, and, and auditing uh, mechanisms. But this money, you know, needs to be returned to the people of Afghanistan for, for any, any significant improvement, for, for, for especially for women, but for uh, the, the people in general. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this this also makes me think about um, a sort of sort of the geopolitical significance of Afghanistan. I mean, it's right there, uh, you know, in South Asia by uh, Pakistan and Iran and uh, uh, these other countries where the U.S. and the West definitely have a uh, deep interest. And so how do you think the Taliban leadership sort of plays into the geostrategic position of Afghanistan uh, in the region? Within the Taliban, uh, uh, as many will um, uh, acknowledge, uh, there is a general split between what we may call uh, more nationalistic or nationalist, you know, na- nationalist-minded uh, elements, and those who, uh, you know, it is said, uh, are more associating, uh, are more uh, associated uh, with the, the government of Pakistan, which, um, in contrast to these more nationalist. Uh, elements of the Taliban, um, you know, it is said, want to just promote the interests of neighboring Pakistan in the country. Uh, you know, this split is real, and you can see in many ways um, the ambivalence around these promises that the Taliban have made as a whole in the country probably stem to this disagreement. Uh, you know, you hear some of the reports of of, of clashes, internal clashes, and 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 and, uh, and struggles and conflicts within the, the the Taliban. You know, some of them are quite ludicrous. You know, you hear uh, reports of uh, people being locked in closets um, for for periods of time. Um, you know, uh, uh, these these are real, and I think that um, uh, those regional conflicts are are, are manifesting um, in, in in within the Taliban government. And you know, it could even be that. Uh, a year from now, uh, those those uh, internal divisions, uh, as a result of those uh, uh, you know regional influences, could be the could spell the demise for for the Taliban. But you know, it, it just goes without saying that those uh, uh, those regional interests of neighboring countries continue to play a, a big role in the country. You know, and 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 will be uh, regardless of, of of the Taliban, regardless of whether the Taliban remain in power or not. Uh, Afghanistan is a country uh, that has um, tremendous uh, mineral wealth uh, and and uh, economic potential. Uh, and I think for this reason, uh, regional actors, uh, neighboring countries, uh, would like uh, some some you know role in in, in influencing uh, that development and and seeing it to their you know, to, to their benefit. You know, t- t- time will tell. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, these regional uh, influences and interests in Afghanistan uh, amount relatively uh, uh, to uh, small issues uh, when compared to the continued uh, stranglehold that uh, uh, the United States uh, has Afghanistan in. Yeah. And, you know, sort of looking at how things have unfolded over the last year in Afghanistan, I mean, I have to wonder could this have been avoided? I mean, was there any scenario 
where uh, the U.S. could have withdrawn from Afghanistan after this brutal, devastating, bloody war for two decades and uh, have some other element come to power besides the Taliban or uh, the U.S. presence there basically doom Afghanistan to the fate that it's experiencing right now. I mean, you know, uh, certainly, uh, you know, we don't have a crystal ball and we're not clairvoyant or anything, but I, I mean, just uh, what do you like? Was there any way that what Afghanistan is experiencing right now could have been avoided? I mean, outside, I suppose, of the U.S. just not uh, uh, interfering to begin with. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was going to say, you know, it could have could have been avoided had had uh, Western interference and involvement in the country uh, not been the way it has been. But you know, look, what's interesting is is to is to see how former uh, officials in the previous the, the the formerly Islamic Republic of Afghanistan are now talking about this 20 year period. I mean, if you look at some of the recent interviews with uh, Ashraf Ghani, you know, the the, the former president of Afghanistan now um, in exile. I believe in the United Arab Emirates. You know, in a recent interview, uh, you know, I when asked about corruption uh, under his government, he says, "Well, uh, corruption has always been a problem in Afghanistan, and it began, and, and this corruption began uh, with what he calls the crooked dealings of the United States with uh, with with former warlords in, in the country." And, and 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 in a lot of ways, you know, this is probably the most astute thing that Ghani has said in 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 on, in, in recent record. Um, because, uh, you know, from the way in which uh, the United States has handled not only the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, uh, but the, uh, the, the 20, 30 years uh, even prior uh, dealings in the country, you know, one, one struggles to find an outcome that doesn't end the way it did. You know, and, and that's, that's simply a, sort of a, a consequence uh, of... Uh, to use Ghani's terms, these crooked dealings um, that the United States engages in, not only in Afghanistan, but, but, but around the world. You know, one could speculate and say, yes, had, had a, a, more, a more substantial and, and earnest efforts, genuine effort to, to build civil society and so on in Afghanistan, you know, had, had, had that been there, could things have changed? Sure. But again, we have to remember that there was no indication and there's really no evidence to suggest that this was ever uh, a serious intent of the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan. However, that being said, you know, whether whether this was a direct product or a direct consequence or impact of the 20 year period of U.S. occupation in Afghanistan or not, whether whether it was or not, you know, the people of Afghanistan as much as we may think about how the Taliban have changed, the people of Afghanistan have changed too. Uh, we can't forget that the, that the people uh, are very much still actors in this country. As I mentioned, women are still to this day taking to 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 uh, demonstrations and and protest, and and uh, you know it, it's through this 20-year period that the, the people have been able to uh, develop their own political consciousness, to develop their own. Uh, sense of uh, of belonging in this country, and I think it's really up to them in, in terms of how how from this mess, from this morass of uh, crooked dealings and instability, uh, the country will find uh, you know it's it's long sought after stability uh, and and hopefully uh, peace. You know, uh, every day uh, uh, the situation is getting more dire and more. The suffering is becoming more intense for the people, uh, and yet at the same time they are showing a strident courage and, and and refusal to succumb to these 
tremendous odds. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Sada, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're we'll moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, September 1st, 2022. Wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. And as always, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 2 0252-11320. Our operators are standing by. You can also hear our show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And definitely follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And just like every day, we are streaming live on rumble.com. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Jackie. Absolutely. And Dr. Desai, uh, UN Human Rights Commissioner uh, Michelle Bachelet uh, has said that China has committed, quote-unquote, serious human rights violations against the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang province. And uh, this is part of a 45-page report that was published by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, or OHCHR, that concluded, quote, the extent of arbitrary and discriminatory, excuse me, discriminatory detention of members of Uyghur and other predominantly Muslim groups pursuant to law and policy in context of restrictions and deprivations more generally of fundamental rights enjoyed individually and collectively may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. Now, the Chinese government has responded with its own 120-page uh, uh, counter-report that, you know, basically discussed the issues of uh, terrorism and uh, stability of a state program around uh, de-radicalization and, quote, vocational education and training centers. And this is something that is consistently denied, I find, uh, in the West about these issues. And, of course, Dr. Desai, this whole issue around uh, uh, alleged genocide of Uyghur Muslims has been prominent uh, for a few years now. And I remember the first real champion of this narrative was one Adrian Zenz, um, a German-born far-right evangelical with uh, what, what I would describe as some pretty backward ideas about women and disciplining children and things like this. He 
works for the Victims of Communism Foundation, something that I'm not, well, I guess I understand why it exists. It's just still pretty absurd. But uh, it was never clear to me what kind of legitimacy he had to be a so-called expert on China. But be that as it may, I mean, when you look at the timing of all this, particularly with the U.S. continuing to uh, needle China vis-a-vis Taiwan, uh, I just wonder uh, how you're sort of seeing this report coming out, uh, frankly, regurgitating a lot of these are same talking points that have been driven into the ground by the major power for a little while now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, looked at from the broadest angle, we're just seeing another miserable chapter in the United States' refusal to deal with the fact that it is no longer head honcho in the world and that it's going to have to accept a world in which there are other powers. Now, I, you know, considering that they are always talking about how they want the whole world to prosper and there has to be development and so on, they ought to be happy about this, but they're not. Instead, they are fighting this decline in their power tooth and nail, and they're doing it through several different ways. So obviously one is to continuously increase uh, military tensions around the world, whether it is in Ukraine, whether it is in the Arctic, whether it is on the, across the Taiwan Straits, whether it is in Africa, Latin America, you name it, they are constantly ratcheting up the military tension. And they are essentially threatening those powers that refuse to open themselves up to penetration, exploitation by American corporations and commodities and so on. And China, of course, being you know, very committed to developing its own economy in its own way is one of the prime targets. Indeed, there is a cross-party consensus in the United States. Even the more sensible people in American foreign policy establishment, the slightly more sensible people, all target China. So they, that's, the, that's the overall thing. Then China is also being targeted through trade and technology wars. So now we've seen, for example, that the United States has imposed export restrictions on certain very high glass chips that uh, American corporations make uh, and with the idea that somehow it's going to cripple China. But in all of these matters, whether it is increasing military tensions, in which case, you know, the United States ends up losing and losing badly, as we saw in Afghanistan, and as I think we will soon see in Ukraine. Uh, So there's that. Then trade and technology wars. I mean, the United States is imposing sanctions on Russia. It is now imposing these export restrictions and so on. They're all going to boomerang back on the United States, just as sanctions on Russia has boomeranged back in the form of uncontrolled inflation. So finally, then, we have this another prong of attack, which is essentially uh, at the level of discourse, at the level of talk, where basically they use everything in their power, uh, to everything under their control, to try to create a discourse about how certain countries, like China, are violating human rights and undermining democracy and so on and so forth, while, of course, completely ignoring the fact that the state of human rights and democracy in the United States itself is extremely bad and sad. So, you know, whether you think of Black Lives Matter, whether you think about the fact that, you know, the United States itself is a settler society, that, you know, there are migrant workers whose rights are being violated day in and day out. You think about all these things. None of this 
matters. Instead, the United States thinks that it's going to be very credible standing up for the rights of certain Muslim minorities in China. Well, we know exactly how the United States' own relationship with the Muslims of this world has been going so far. So you can take that. And the fact of the matter is that China has repeatedly underlined over 100 nations have agreed with China that there, are, there is no a genocide going on in, 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 in Xinjiang, as the American government has claimed. So, uh, and, and, and this includes a lot of Muslim countries, Muslim-majority countries. So this is the, the broader picture. And by the way, I should add one other thing about this report, which is quite interesting. Much as the United States and all the people who essentially are cooperating with it in order to increase military tensions and increase international tensions generally, like various NGOs and so on, all these people have been baying for this report for ages. And then when this report actually comes out, what do you find? Point number one, the word genocide does not occur in it. Point number two, while there are serious, while the words serious human rights violations do occur in, in the report, the fact is the report is extremely cautious. It says this may be true, it is credible that, etc., 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 which of course then the mainstream Western press instantly converts into, yes, this is actually going on. And, and therefore, you know, essentially, so, so, so basically the West thinks that it has, it has had a win in terms of having this report published at all within, you know, like a few minutes before Madame Bachelet ceased to be the uh, high Com- United Nations High Commissioner of Human Rights. But so, so clearly, you know, throughout her time in office, you know, she had, there's been pressure on her to publish such a report. So this report was written, but of course, China has repeatedly opposed, and I think quite rightly opposed, uh, the publication of this report, because it, it's not really, I mean, China basically says, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that this violates the mandate of the the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner. And in um, what way does it violate? Well, because the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner, like all other UN institutions, are supposed to work in cooperation with the governments, not in cooperation with tiny NGOs, many of whom are funded by the most right-wing organizations, corporations, and governments around the world. So in this sense, the, United, the whole UN system, much as we value it, we also have to see that it, there's a lot to be rectified. Because over the years, when the West essentially had their way with these organizations, they have deeply, uh, 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 how can we say, denatured and corrupted them. So, so, so that's, but, but overall, basically, this is part of the U.S. effort to essentially fight against, throw a tantrum about the fact that it's losing international influence and, and its refusal to celebrate the fact that more people around the world are leading better lives and more countries around the world are therefore today wield substantially more power and are not easily ordered about. Definitely. And I mean, you know, you're so right to uh, sort of point out the hypocrisy of the United States as it pertains to Muslims. I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of Muslims in the Middle East and in West and Central and South Asia as well. But that hasn't stopped the United States from bombing and making war and just positively ravaging all of the Muslims, both in that part of the world and all over the globe to say nothing about how it historically has treated Muslims right here in this country. But Dr. Desai, you have touched on what I think is a very 
important aspect of this report to highlight. And this is really the insidious nature of it, right? Because it is built chiefly upon insinuations, saying that basically, well, this could maybe be defined as a human rights uh, a crime and things like this, but there, there's no proof. It's just insinuations and innuendo. And since the people of the United States in the West have been so poisoned against uh, China, both by our governments and uh, uh, mainstream media, Media platforms that when those uh, kind of reports are taken and uh, uh, skewed, which I think is precisely why it was published to uh, uh, begin with, and then published as uh, as proof that these uh, human rights violations are, are taking place. Well, this is being presented to a public that is already primed and made ready to accept basically anything bad that you can uh, uh, say about China. I mean, the United States is the same country that basically condemned uh, uh, China for its uh, aggressive and rapid response to the coronavirus uh, vax, uh, to the coronavirus pandemic and saying that it was authoritarian and things like that. But here we are a couple of years after the onset of COVID-19 and China stands at about a handful of thousands of deaths while the U.S. has over a million dead. Matter of fact, um, the life expectancy in this country has actually declined over the last two years, largely due to uh, COVID-19. And there's a million examples of that. Uh, that we could give. But what I think is particularly noteworthy here, uh, Dr. Desai, and as you note, this was published literally with only a few minutes left in Michelle Bachelet's uh, tenure as uh, uh, the head of this uh, organization, is that it, it gives an air of legitimacy to the whole claim against human rights violations or genocide against uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang because it's coming from uh, uh, the, the United Nations, which is supposed to be this well-respected, very legitimate um, institution uh, that should serve as a, uh, a community of uh, the different world governments. But here we see just one example, I think, of this organization basically being weaponized by the U.S., for U.S. imperialist interests. And so I think it's unfortunate that uh, the U.N. has sort of undermined its credibility in this way, but I think it also shows the depth of power and influence that, you and, that U.S. imperialism has and that same influence that's trying desperately to hang on to. Absolutely. There's actually three different points that really are worth picking at in this, you know. The first is that actually there's a long history now of UN agencies being sort of, you know, essentially forced to deviate from their mandate because they they don't actually get the funding they need from governments, particularly Western governments. As a result, what they do is then they end up be, be becoming playthings of rich and powerful people. It's a little bit, if you think about, the, about how much influence Bill Gates exercises over uh, the World Health Organization, for example, that would be a good example. So similarly, I think, and historically, I mean, non-government organizations have in any case become extremely influential in all sorts of international governance institutions, including in the UN system. And that's 
something that must be investigated and exposed uh, more thoroughly than it is up to this point. I think people need to really think about this, uh, this question, this problem, and, and really investigate how the UN in general and its various agencies in particular have become captive of certain Western interests. So that's the first point. The second is you're absolutely right. I mean, when you look at the fact, the way in which COVID, for example, was handled, and COVID, you know, even today, every day, every other day in the Western press, particularly in the business press, you read, you know, stories about how China's fight against COVID is hampering the world economy. And I mean, China is blamed for everything, you know. So the fact of the matter is that if the Western economies are doing badly, it's because they haven't handled COVID well at all, which has led, for example, to a lot of people withdrawing from the labor force. If you are a mother who doesn't know when, what day of the week her child will be sent home because there's a COVID scare at school and she has no arrangements to take care of the child, how is she going to present herself as a, you know, or she may have other care responsibilities, you know, and, and so on. She cannot be a worker in the, in the market. And the women have been in the forefront of those who have had to withdraw from the labor force. So I think that, you know, and, and so, so China is blamed for this. But the American record, the, like in China, the last time I looked, had about like uh, about less than four people per million who had, uh, who had died of COVID, whereas the United States had uh, between 2,500 and 3,000. I forget what the exact number is. That many people per million had died of COVID in the United States. So you can imagine this is, you know, and, and, and so, so that, that's really important. And what I find really interesting is that just as American efforts to, uh, to essentially portray China as some kind of big bad uh, actor in, in the world, uh, on the world stage is boomeranging in, in a number of ways. There is another way in which it is boomeranging, which is that I think the Chinese have recently taken to mounting a counteroffensive. They are saying, well, if you're talking about human rights, we take a very holistic view of human rights. We think that people have a human right not just to free speech or, or, or whatever. We think, you know, of course they do. They don't deny that, but they have human right also to a decent lifestyle. And this is, you know, in the richest country in the world, so many people don't have a decent lifestyle. The, the essentially, the huge inequality has skyrocketed. And as you rightly pointed out, U.S. longevity has declined. This is astonishing. I mean, one may understand if after a certain point it plateaus, but it has actually declined. Uh, and this is and this is at a time when the U.S. longevity is already compares badly against a lot of less well-off countries with a lower per capita income. So, so in that sense, I think the Chinese counteroffensive on human rights is very good. And then finally, I want to pick up on the point you made about the fact that you know the Western media is so primed. You know, it has just prepared the ground for people to believe the worst about China, so that you know this report is going to fall. On fertile soil. In a certain sense, you are right, but you also have to remember how thin this soil is. Yes, the report has come out uh, a, a very, a, a very uh, broad but thin layer of the chatterati of the journalists are primed to take this report and convert it into a, another uh, a round of accusations of genocide against China or serious human rights violations or whatever they, they, they dare to say. 
But I would say I wonder how deep it goes among the public. Like the the Western public, for the Western press, for example, has been baying for Russia's blood for now six months, more than six months, more than, in fact, for a year. Because remember, all this started with these alleged negotiations. The Ukraine conflict started with the alleged negotiations with Russia soon after the fall of Kabul. And uh, it has been going on. So the Russians and Putin have been demonized for a long time. But what does the ordinary American say when you ask him or her what's going on? You know, what, what do they care about? They say, By, I care about inflation. I care about my job. I care about the economy. I care about the healthcare system, etc., etc. I care about the environment. But one of the things that we must not forget is we are, I mean, one of the, sometimes I think about it, my head just spins. We are living through the worst summer probably ever, certainly that I can ever remember, of extreme weather events. Too much rain, too little rain, too much heat, whatever you can just imagine. We have seen all of this, right? The urgency of acting on climate change has never been greater. What do the United States and Western and its Western allies do? They create unnecessary international tensions, which are going to make it even more difficult to cooperate on important issues, important global issues like climate. So you think, but so I, I think that you know the. Propaganda effort is certainly there. They are huffing and puffing behind the propaganda effort. But one wonders how deep it goes. And that's partly why alternative news sources like you guys are so important, because the fact of the matter is that this is the moment when more and more people are going to, if they care about anything at all, they will be listening for alternatives. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Continue to be joined by Dr. Radhika Desai. And Dr. Desai, I was thinking over our commercial break, because, of course, you're in uh, Manitoba, Canada, our neighbor to the north, of course, uh, under the, the leadership of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And I'm actually curious about what the politics are around China uh, uh, within Canada and coming from the Canadian government. I mean, my feeling is that Canada, like, you know, Australia and, and, and any number of other countries um, that, that we could name are, you know, basically positioned as uh, junior partners and appendages to a U.S. US imperialism and often parrot a lot of these um, policies and narratives uh, uncritically. And I'm just wondering how that shows up uh, within the Canadian government. You know, Sean, uh, the United States, Canada, the UK, 
Australia and New Zealand all belong to this shadowy organization that goes back to the Second World War called the Five Eyes Surveillance Network. So in that sense, there's actually a formal organization of essentially what I, what you may call Britain and its offshoots or the sort of Anglo-American world, shall we say. So, so definitely there is a, there's a lot to what you're saying. And as far as I can tell, the Canadian government has been, you know, uh, largely towing the, uh, the, 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 the U.S. line on practically all important foreign policy questions and is certainly taking the lead on, the, uh, on being anti-Russian and being anti-Chinese. As far as being anti-Chinese is concerned, you will remember that uh, over after between 2018 and last year, there was the whole saga of the uh, imprisonment of all the, essentially, the, 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 well, actually, not so the imprisonment, but the, the holding hostage of Meng Wanzhou, essentially, because the United States had asked for her extradition. Eventually, she was let go, because, not because of any effort on the part of the Canadian government, which simply said, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, sir, to anything that the Americans wanted. So, so they, the Canadian government didn't do boo, but in the end, the Chinese and the Americans came to some sort of deal in which Meng Wanzhou was, was released. The Canadian Parliament has been in the forefront of declaring without any evidence whatsoever, without looking at any evidence presented by the Chinese government, without talking to them, essentially passing a motion claiming that there was genocide in, uh, in, in, in China, in, in, in Xinjiang. If these are the sorts of people who have been elected to our parliament, none of whom protested, this is alarming, that these people think that it's okay to, to uh, pass a motion which, on which you have not examined anything. I mean, the allegation of genocide is a very serious one. In the past, when it has been used, there has been months of investigation uh, before uh, uh, any allegation can be made. And these people, on the basis of a couple of weeks of hearings, they decided to, to pass the legislation. So things, I would say, are pretty bad in Canada. And I would say one other thing. Canada borders with Russia over the Arctic. As you know, and Canada uses its position as an Arctic nation to really further. So as you know, Jens Stoltenberg was over recently posing at various military venues with Justin Trudeau uh, and essentially talking about how NATO must strengthen Arctic security, which will just become another spot for confrontation with Russia. And finally, I will say one further thing, which is very interesting. So in this Ukraine conflict, or what I call the conflict over Ukraine, which is essentially an American proxy war against Russia, uh, in which Ukraine is the proxy, as a proxy, Ukraine is being destroyed. You know, when people say stand for Ukraine, I'm going like, what are you doing? You are standing for the destruction of Ukraine. Ukraine is being destroyed because of the position you're taking, because this position has involved historically, and uh, uh, not only encouraging, in fact, persuading Zelensky, who was originally elected to implement the Minsk Accords, persuading him to, uh, to go in the opposite direction and essentially refused to sign the accords, create uh, in increasing tensions with Russia, which has brought things to this point. But uh, forget that. But the point I'm trying to make here is that 
And, and as you know, the Zelensky government has become reliant on some extremely right-wing forces, many of whom are outright fascists. He has banned all centrist and leftist opposition to his government. All of these things are happening in the name of democracy and freedom and human rights, etc., etc. Now, what I was getting to is that in Canada, there has historically been a policy of encouraging right-wing immigration from former socialist countries, or even when they were socialists. So we have, uh, you know, we have had actually two waves of immigration here from Ukraine, an early one going back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which was very left-wing. And it has a historic record of playing a leading role. Many Ukrainians played a leading role in the workers' movement and, 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 and so on. Here in Winnipeg, for example, many uh, leading uh, uh, people, leaders of the Gen Winnipeg General Strike were from this community and so on. But post-war, there was also another wave of immigration. And our present deputy prime minister, uh, uh, finance minister, former foreign minister, Christia Freeland, is, the, uh, is a woman who is not only a granddaughter of a banderista, that is to say followers of Stefan Bandera, the Nazi uh, sympathizer who actually was in many ways, who, who, whose group was actually more brutal than the Nazis back in the Second World War, massacring Polish people, Jewish people, etc. The famous Babi Yar massacre is to be remembered. So uh, this woman is not only a granddaughter of such a person, but she is proud of it. She has been photographed uh, in demonstrations, waving all sorts of Ukrainian nationalist paraphernalia, etc. And this woman may easily become our prime minister. Because it is widely rumored that Trudeau is tired, he, he, he's gotten into too much hot water because of his corruption scandals, etc. So he may retire early and, you know, retire off, you have a, have a lucrative retirement, as I like to say, because these people, once they retire, they get plum jobs in consultancies and directorships and whatnot in big companies. And, and they, they, you know, he's no worse off for being prime minister. He actually might be better off for not being prime minister. So anyway, so given all of these things, the situation in Canada is very bad. There is also thanks because we, ha we have this sort of, you know, uh, 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 miasma created about, you know, Russia is the enemy, China is the enemy. And there is, you know, increasingly attempts to silence people who are trying to present a different discourse uh, across the board. And I think that this is going to get worse. I mean, we've been through a, a summer. We are now getting back into, you know, people are, will become, you know, parliament will reconvene, politics will resume, and, and this will only increase. So I don't see that things are going to be much better out here. And increasingly, we, we might even have here, by the way, a person elected to the leadership of the, of the conservative party who is all, well, not exactly a Trump figure. I mean, Canadian politics is not the same, but he's about as close as it's possible to get in Canada to Trump. Yeah. And, you know, you, you raise the issue of Ukraine, uh, uh, Dr. Desai, and I think that's entirely uh, uh, relevant uh, for a number of reasons. And you were discussing it sort of within the context of Canadian politics. But also, I just think it's actually deeply connected to what we're seeing from the U.S. Uh, and the West as it pertains to uh, uh, China. And we've been noting on the show that, I mean, it absolutely seems like the U.S. is attempting to use Taiwan against China. 
China in the same way that it wanted to uh, or, you know, successfully did use Ukraine against Russia. And particularly when we're at a moment when it's clear that, you know, Ukraine, despite just the obscene amount of aid that has been sent to the United States. And I say obscene for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, this is money that is literally being taken from the American people who are watching their material uh, um, uh, conditions worsen here in this country, but also because we know a lot of these weapons end up, you know, on the dark web and where they go from there, God only knows. But uh, even still, it's just clear that as U.S. imperialism continues to try to maintain its grip on the world, to try to, you know, uh, uh, ensure that uh, basically this neoliberal style of capitalism remains a sort of dominant economic function on the world stage, in a way, it's sort of digging its own grave because every move that it makes to try to retain its power, it actually seems to lose uh, some of that influence. And while I don't think that imperialism will fall tomorrow, uh, I still feel that in in this process and in this effort, uh, which I think they're sort of doing accidentally by digging their own grave, they're actively trying to dig ours as well, in the sense that a uh, uh, an open conflict between the U.S. and Russia or between U.S. and China could have devastating consequences for humanity itself. And as such, that's why it's so important, I think, to highlight these things, particularly because this is context that is completely absent from the uh, mainstream uh, media platforms and certainly uh, uh, never passes from the lips of uh, those in in leadership. And indeed, uh, what we're discussing here in this context is verboten. If you have the audacity to lay the blame for this uh, war in Ukraine at the feet of anyone except uh, Vladimir Putin, well, then, you know, you're accused of being a dupe of the Kremlin and all these sorts of things. It's like this thought-killing exercise, almost like a a juvenile bullying tactic, just sort of cranked up uh, uh, to a high level to try to basically bludgeon people into accepting uh, uh, Western narratives. But see, this is why I think, you know, political education is so important, Dr. Desai, because uh, I just think it's crucial for people to understand that support for imperialism is, in fact, support for our own destruction on uh, a number of levels. And therefore, it's no coincidence that we are constantly bombarded with these uh, 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 narratives and these reports and things like that, that uh, uh, frankly generate a myth that protects uh, the wealthy few, but uh, spells real disaster for the rest of us. Absolutely. There's, again, two or three points that I'd like to pick up on that because you've made, I mean, some really relevant points. So first of all, I completely agree with you that we are looking at the death throes of what I call neoliberal financialized capitalism, by which I mean, you know, basically, I mean, in a certain sense, it includes the whole of the capitalist world. But I would argue that the United States and the United Kingdom in particular are on the leading edge of this. They have gone the farthest down the road of neoliberalism, which has necessarily meant that they have their economies are the most financialized and the least productive. So, but, so these guys are going down, but as they go down, they are determined to drag a whole bunch of others with them. Certainly Ukraine is going down with them. Ukraine is destroyed. As they say, the United States wants to fight in Ukraine till the last Ukrainian. So, you know, the Ukraine is being destroyed. Secondly, I would say what astonishes me practically daily, sometimes many times a day, is what 
the or governments of countries like Germany or 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 or, or Italy or France. I mean, Italy is actually less uh, uh, willing to participate in all these shenanigans. But nevertheless, and particularly Germany, what Germany is willing to do in order to kowtow to the Americans at the great expense of Germany's economy, which has historically been and still remains far more productively oriented and is not so financially oriented as the American or the British economy. So they are doing harm to their industrial base their original policy of cooperating with the Russians, they were the ones who came up, the Germans and the French were the co-sponsors of the Minsk II agreements, which would have created peace in Europe, peace in Ukraine, peace for the Donbass republics, etc. They would have ended the civil war, they would have allowed Ukraine to remain a single country. Today, it will, it will you know, what remains of Ukraine will be a rump, I should think. So the Ukrainians have lost so much. So, so in all of this, so these people are going down, the Americans and the British, but they are dragging a whole lot of others. And I'm sorry to say a whole lot of others are allowing, they are sacrificing their own countries for what I don't know. It's a complete mystery to me. And I certainly think that the people of Europe come the next round of elections, they will have something to say. Because as I've said before, the propaganda, which is very shrill, and if you just listen to the propaganda, you would think, oh my God, everybody's gone collectively mad. But I actually don't think everybody's gone collectively mad. In their own way, people are resisting this discourse about China and about Russia by saying, look, folks, we have our problems. We have an economic crisis, a financial crisis. We have an inflation crisis, a cost of living crisis, etc. And we are concerned about that. And what are you doing about that? So I think and that, you know, in the U.S., for example, you have your midterm elections and it's going to tell on the Biden administration. So that's the first point. And by the way, I should say that I've got a book coming out that is making exactly this argument that the new this is the the final death throes of neoliberal financialized capitalism. The only question is how many other countries' leaders will allow this you know, will, will essentially allow their countries to be dragged into the maelstrom of these death rows, or they will rescue them and go in a different direction, which is away from financialization and away from neoliberal capitalism and hopefully ultimately away from capitalism itself. The second thing is that we are going to be looking at, as I say, already we are seeing signs of this in various ways, but we are going to see a new McCarthyism, a new level, a heightened level of persecution against any you know, in the you know, people often say we are in a new Cold War, but I'm and I've used this word often myself. But I wonder if this word is any longer relevant, given that the wars are already ongoing. They are hybrid wars. They are already being conducted. So it is no longer a Cold War. But even in the old Cold War, you know, the leaderships of the two countries, the United States and the USSR, actually talked to each other on a regular basis. They were able to cooperate on many things. Today, even communication has broken down. So we are in an altogether more dangerous situation. And in this context, I think that uh, there will be a new McCarthyism and all progressive forces, everybody who cares about freedom, about their country, about their economy, about doing the right thing internationally will have to speak up because if they don't, you know, you know, every time somebody speaks up, they will be picked off and there will be no 
other discourse. And this is a very dangerous moment. And finally, I want to come to Ukraine and Taiwan. This is, of course, a very involved matter. So first of all, let me say that it's very important to understand that as far as China is concerned, they do not see any parallels for a very simple reason. Whatever else you may say, Ukraine was an autonomous, independent, internationally recognized country, is still. Taiwan, practically the entire world realizes and accepts, when they accept the one China policy, Taiwan is a province of China. China has always asserted, and, if you, and, and one, we must always remember, so, because if you think it's one-sided, the leadership of Taiwan has always asserted that it was a one China. Uh, it was one China, claiming therefore to be the legitimate government of all of China. But that's a separate matter. But the fact of the matter is that they, there is a one China policy, which even the United States has not formally broken with. It has. It is stretching. It is pushing the envelope of the strategic ambiguity policy, but it has yet not rejected the one China principle. By the provocations that have recently taken place with Nancy Pelosi and other lawmakers going to Taiwan with the United States selling more weapons or announcing the sale of more weapons to, to Taiwan, the uh, 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 other forms of uh, 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 various accusations against China, etc. All of these things are uh, essentially, when the United States is doing that, it is, in its mind, it is thinking it's going to do to China via Taiwan, what it's doing to Russia via Ukraine. But one must remember a couple of things. Even against Russia, the United States is not necessarily succeeding. And we will see in the coming months how uh, strongly the Europeans remain on side. Secondly, uh, uh, on, on Taiwan, I think that China is a far more formidable enemy. And it is not going to be very easy. And also remember that the vast majority of Taiwanese, by the way, like the vast majority of Ukrainians who wanted to, to sign the Minsk Accord, who wanted to have peace with Donbass, similarly, the vast majority of the Taiwanese do not support anything. So if you're at all about human rights, democracy, etc., you should not be going in there doing military exercises and sending your warships and selling arms and so on. You should be uh, encouraging a peaceful integration between China and Taiwan, which is what China has always wanted. What China has always envisaged is a, a slow increase in economic integration, which will eventually create consent for greater political integration, etc. It has always thought of this as a gradual process. But if the Americans are going to provoke then, and this is what has been, for me, is the meaning of China's military exercises, then China may be forced to use the military route. It does not want to do it. It has never wanted to do it. It has an extremely flourishing economic and social and political and cultural relationship with Taiwan. It is no reason to break it. But if the Americans are going to provoke it, the, Taiwan, uh, the, the, the Chinese may have to act militarily. So the purpose of the exercises that were recently conducted by the People's Liberation Army in the Taiwan Strait was to actually simply say, look, folks, if you think that we can't do this militarily, we want you to know that we can. We want you to know that we can and we will if we have to. So don't provoke us. We don't want to do this, but we can do it if we, if we want. So if you are going to, you know, if you're going to try and turn Taiwan into some kind of a base for harassing us, we cannot allow that. 
And that's essentially what's happening. So the Ukraine-Taiwan analogy is in the minds of the Americans, but certainly the Chinese vehemently resist it. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Dr. Radhika Desai is here as we continue. And uh, Dr. Desai, a moment ago, you, you, you sort of asked the question about how many more countries, how many more governments will stand by and watch their country sort of uh, be plunged into oblivion by tailing the United States and holding on desperately to a neoliberal financialization. And uh, that raises a question for me that I think has been baked into a lot of what we've been talking about today. And that's the relationship between NATO in Europe. And this is a kind of a broad question, although certainly uh, relevant uh, within the context of Ukraine. Um, how do you see the relationship between NATO and Europe sort of factoring in to uh, uh, the geopolitical equation at this point and this sort of uh, broader uh, uh, dynamic of how these decisions are, are, are impacting people on the ground inside these countries? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I would say that there are a number of considerations to be brought to bear. Now, first, first things first, you know, if you read about the origins of NATO, what you realize is that it began with a series of pacts between various European countries, Britain and, you know, Belgium and whatever, France and so on, to try to create some kind of basis for mutual security. And then what happens is that the Americans, aided by the Canadians, muscle in. And, you know, there is this old saying, you know, Lord Ismay, who is one of the first director general of NATO, is supposed to have said, although I'm not sure whether he actually said it, but it's certainly very apt, which is why it keeps being repeated. What is the aim of NATO? The aim of NATO is to keep the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. In Europe, that is to say. And so, essentially, you are seeing, you know, uh, just before uh, President Biden was elected, you were beginning to see a certain level of disintegration of NATO. You know, President Macron called uh, uh, NATO brain dead. President Trump said, uh, you know, what's the purpose of NATO? Nobody's paying their fair share, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we, we should pull out of NATO. You know, uh, it's like the uh, United States pulling out of NATO is like having a Catholic church without the Pope. I mean, this is not working, right? So, okay. And then uh, you also had, at the same time, uh, so, 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 yeah, uh, uh, Macron and, uh, yeah, anyway, NATO was in crisis in one way or another. Now, President 
Biden has come back or has, has come to power and he is implementing his whole, you know, we are going to rally all the democracies, you know, completely ignoring the fact that democracy is in the, uh, what is the, in the critical care unit in practically every country, every one of these countries, right? So, but nevertheless, there, there has been a, a, a re-emphasis on NATO as a, as a military alliance, etc. But I think that NATO has, for the last many decades been expanding, as you know, you know, the expansion of NATO is at the core of the current conflict in Ukraine. And of course, the attempts to create extensions of NATO in Asia will, of course, figure in any conflict, uh, which is increasingly looking likely in Asia with the creation of AUKUS, you know, etc. You were asking earlier about these Anglo-American powers, Five Eyes, etc. And AUKUS is another sort of layer of complication that we are adding there. But anyway, so, so, so NATO was in crisis. Now it is somehow being brought back to life, but its incoherence is rising. You already see disagreements within NATO that are already quite serious. So you see disagreements in the form of, you know, Turkey saying, Turkey and Hungary, you know, saying certain things which are not agreed to by others. Italy is not always playing by the book. And as I say, uh, you know, the French and the Germans, I would say, you know, before the Bi before Biden's election, the French and the Germans were leading an effort to create an independent security policy for Europe, which would have included within it two critical elements. Number one, uh, further arms expenditure, independent arms expenditure. Uh, in Europe for the purposes, uh, you know, to, to be decided based on the security interests of European countries outside the framework of NATO. And uh, it would have included, um, uh, as I say, closer relationships with, with, with Russia. As far as I can tell, and I've been watching what, the, what are the commitments in terms of arms and armaments that are being made by the French and the Germans, I would say that, okay, they may have agreed to spend more on the military, you know, the military maybe, you know, come up to 2%, but this spending can go either way if uh, the, the NATO alliance becomes increasingly counterproductive as it is becoming. They, the Europeans can, if they wish, uh, you know, uh, strike out on their own and create their own peace. Because you see, the fact of the matter is this, such a peace will, I think it's very likely that such a peace will have to be made for the simple reason that in the next couple of months, I would think, um, it's very likely, I mean, I won't bet on it, but it's very likely that the Ukrainians' ability to keep up the appearance of fighting, because they're not really fighting, but they keep up the appearance of fighting, will decline to the point where the only option will be to come to the negotiating table. Alternatively, we are also reading in various uh, sources that uh, the leadership will be replaced by another leadership which is more willing to negotiate as I think would be a better choice for ordinary Ukrainians. So if once Ukraine comes to the negotiating table, America, the, you know, what the line America has been pushing will have come to its natural termination. And then it will be the moment of the line the Europeans have been uh, uh, pushing, which will be towards some kind of negotiated settlement with some terms with Russia, because the fact of the matter is that the United States cannot fulfill 
um, Europe's energy needs. And without energy, where is any modern economy today? So I would say that, yeah, the NATO question is very complex, I would say. But I say, and also, as I say, I just fail to understand. Uh, I mean, I don't entirely fail to understand. I think basically what we have is a bunch of leaders have been elected in uh, in 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 um, uh, in Europe, which have so far proved amenable. But how long will they remain amenable when they have to face their electorates who are fed up with this war? I mean, even in places like Poland, which are historically quite anti-Russian, there is a, a you know war exhaustion. There is refugee exhaustion. So this is quite a different thing vis-a-vis, you know, prominent uh, German politicians are saying this is suicidal. We need Russian energy. We need Nord Stream 2, let alone Nord Stream 1. Yeah. And, you know, uh, another thing that I'm thinking about, Dr. Desai, sort of from a a movement ideology uh, sort of standpoint. And uh, uh, what I mean by that is, is how we have people who perhaps fancy themselves as anti-imperialist, but basically take a uh, pro-imperialist stance as it pertains to both China and Russia. So they see the war in Ukraine, for instance, as a uh, pro-imperialist, excuse me, an inter-imperialist conflict between the United States and Russia, and also don't see fit to uh, defend China against U.S. imperialism because of its quote-unquote authoritarianism. And so, you know, what kind of clarity do you think that we should really have in considering these questions in our last few minutes that uh, we have here today that you think would sort of deeper our understanding about uh, the real character of these dynamics? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, uh, first of all, I think you rightly uh, uh, point out that, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, to call that these, there are certain members of the left who essentially justify a position which is actually a pro-war position. Uh, a position that relies on continuing this destructive and senseless war, which is costing lives, which is costing money and disrupting the world economy, and therefore the livelihoods of so many people. All of these people are are taking the position that, you know, somehow Russia is imperialist and therefore it has to be an imperialist conflict. But, you know, when did you last look at a map of the the bases maintained by uh, uh, the United States on the one hand and Russia on the other around the world. If you look at it, you will see that the comparison simply falls down. The Russians have hardly any military bases outside their own territory, whereas the United States has absolutely gazillions. The United States is the real imperialist power. Practically most other countries, even if they have elements within them that may be a little adventurist, etc., most other countries realize that it is not uh, a very good policy to try to subdue other countries. But the, in the case of the United States, the last of the, the Johnny-come-lately of the, the old imperialist powers, in the case of the United States, it still, seems, it still seems to imagine that this is the way to go, that it can succeed in doing it. But the United States has never succeeded. Other people can see this. Other countries can see this. So it is definitely not an inter-imperialist conflict. It is a conflict of U.S. created by U.S. imperialism and you have to oppose. This is the main thing to oppose. I think the Russians have shown an enormous amount of patience uh, trying to say, look, let's have Minsk agreements, etc. If the, if, if, if the Russians were trying to, say, instigate Canada or, 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 or Cuba to, you know, or use Canada or Cuba as a proxy against the United States, the United States would go ballistic. 
And even then, the Russians are actually pursuing very measured aims in the current conflict. It's, you know, the West always exaggerated by saying, oh, the, in, by inflating uh, the, the war aims of, of the Russians. The Russians never wanted to take Kiev. So to say Russia has failed to take Kiev is like, uh, you know, well, they never wanted to take Kiev. So, 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 so. So the point here is that, yeah, it's not an inter-imperialist conflict. It is a conflict of Americans. Not, it's not even a, con- a conflict of American imperialism. It is a conflict created by the failure of American imperialism and the refusal of American powers, American uh, uh, ruling uh, cliques to accept it. The, if, if the Americans could accept that, okay, their position is declining, uh, relatively speaking, but absolutely they can still remain a wealthy and productive and dynamic nation, the, the, things will be so much better for the American people. That's a fact. That's a fact. And see, this is a fundamental truth that I think is lost on far too many uh, in the United States. But because of the incessant propaganda that we get from our government and from these uh, uh, mainstream media outlets, there's no uh, uh, understanding, really, not even a consideration about the direct connection between our material conditions in the United States and the ravages of U.S. imperialism of abroad. Because if there were, then people would be inclined to resist imperialism as they have done uh, uh, over the years. And, you know, it actually seems to me that as it pertains to Ukraine specifically, that the consciousness has started to shift a little bit around that um, in the United States, because while people in the United States may still basically be sympathetic uh, to Ukraine, and certainly Russia has been thoroughly demonized in their minds, they also would like very much to be able to benefit from just what seems to be uh, an unlimited amount of billions of dollars that go there when there are so many basic things that we're going without with here in the U.S. I mean, in cities like Jackson, Mississippi and Flint, Michigan, uh, there isn't even clean water here in uh, the most powerful and wealthiest nation on Earth. And so these contradictions, I think, are becoming harder and harder to hide. But as I always point out, spontaneous consciousness is not really going to shift the tide. That is where organizers have to step in and very intentionally uh, uh, direct consciousness in a different direction and uh, to highlight the importance of an organized movement and to show and remind people that they can fight back against these things. But we thank you so much, Dr. Desai, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.